0: Hello everybody, I'm Dwayne Mancini and welcome to another episode of MedTech Money brought to you by Project MedTech. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can always email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review and you can always visit our website www.projectmedtech.com or follow us on LinkedIn. If you are enjoying this content don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching project medtech on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website project medtech is an interview style podcast on the medtech industry where guests share stories advice pitfalls trends and innovations in this episode Our host, Giovanni Loricella, and our guest, Manuel Opitz from DeepEye, discuss the importance of people when forming a medtech startup, what they are working on at DeepEye, the advantages and disadvantages of the MDR, his lessons learned while raising capital, the difference in traditional medtech and software when raising money, the importance of doing due diligence on your investors, and so much more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Manuel Opitz.
1: Manuel, thank you very much for being with us here today. This is the MedTech Money podcast series powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And the reason why we're here is I've talked to MedTech entrepreneurs like yourself, as well as in investors around the world, and I've discovered there's no real silver bullet or specific formula or even magic about how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. So my goal here is to extract insights to demystify this process as well as to help other MedTech innovators who can benefit from this information. And so the audience here today and likely listening in is MedTech entrepreneurs and investors, and I'd like to share your story as well as advice with what I imagine is that first-time founder or CEO who has no clue of what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. And so I thought the best place to start is learning from experienced professionals and people like yourself who have been there and done that before and we're gonna learn about more of your story very shortly. The the reason why I also wanted to to touch base on this is you're based over in Germany, specifically in Bavaria and Munich, and you are running an AI platform company, which we'll get involved in, but this whole software model um, versus this other antithesis with that classic catheter or hardware implantable style device, Um, what's the nuances of developing that style of company? What style of investors are you going after? Um, What are those differences that we see in this world of what we now call med tech, which is quite a large world? So we're gonna get into that. Let's start with a few questions. The first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of these med tech startups? Why or why
2: not? Or am I missing anything or would you add anything? Hi, Giovanni. First, thanks for having me. So this might be a stupid thing to say, actually, while currently fundraising for 2.5 million euros, but I don't think that money is the most important thing for a medtech startup. It is more something which comes when you have the right people and te- tackle the right technical or medical problem. So let's talk about people and problems. First of all, in medtech, there's always some kind of medical professional who faces a problem in their daily work of, for instance, improving quality of life for the patients. This uh, is the first and I think most important ingredient for any medtech company. It applies to all areas of medical professions, regardless if they are, for instance, working in a hospital like surgeons, cardiologists, oncologists, nurses, technicians, whatever or also to ambulant care or private practices like GPs, dentists, or for my startups, orthophists improving mobility of patients, or most recently ophthalmologists preserving the vision of people. All those medical professionals share this passion for helping people, and while doing so, they encounter a lot of problems often related to ineffective processes, outdated technologies, or both of it. So those I would call the problem finders. And now we need a second kind of people who do not accept those problems uh, and the status quo, and they try to overcome it. It's not you know, about wanting to change, it's really acting upon it. And that makes a big difference. They are sometimes you know, a bit crazy people or a bit rebellious people, and they try you know, to go up against all odds and huge problems. But those are really the second most important ingredient. They are called for me problem fond- solvers or just founders. And it can be the same medical professional who found the issue in the first place. But in most cases, I would say these are engineers or scientists who are not part of the old system themselves and are now brought in to fix the problem. And if those two conditions or people come together, we can get a great startup, a great company up and running, because I am convinced if there's a truly big problem or You can also call it opportunistic opportunity. Usually there's money that can be made in solving this problem. And yes, coming back to your uh, original quote in medtech, it usually needs money from investors to get it off the ground because you need medical approval. And maybe the reimbursement pathway is not yet existing. You need clinical data to get to both of it. So there is money needed. This is very costly. On the other side, I think, um, yeah, in, in 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 most cases, you will get the money if there is truly a big problem. I agree
1: with that. And in this next question, I like to have fun with it. You're building a solution for a challenge, right? And, and as you mentioned just now, yep. these medical challenges—they're they're tough. They're they're very challenging, or else they wouldn't be called a challenge. Um, mm-hmm. In these regulated worlds and all these dynamic companies and people and professionals that we have to deal with in order to build these medtech startups to ultimately reach these patients. Do you believe in luck and how much do, does luck play into the success of a med tech startup?
2: I wouldn't call it luck, but I would call it chance. And I think the significance of chance cannot be overstated. Like, you know, if we win we underestimate it. Oh, there was no no luck involved. If we lose, we overestimate it. And I mean this is just how our healthy brain works to protect our mental health, because otherwise we would, you know, go on for ages and and rambling about our mistakes and, and, you know, uh, not glorifying our own successes. I think if you, uh, you know, timing, you can try try to time your startup, but there are so many external factors involved, which you cannot just control or just take another example. If you're in Ukraine right now, I mean, you are running out of luck and that's something it's really, really depending on where you're born, whom you met, what you did in the past. And this can really help you a lot for the future. And there is a lot of chance involved. So I can give you endless more examples. But I think luck or chance is a very, very important of every success story, but also of the failures we do. And
1: as a MedTech entrepreneur raising capital, whether you're thinking about yourself or how you project to investors, Imagine you are an investor, but also you are a MedTech entrepreneur. What do you think is the most investable skill set or characteristics of a MedTech investor? In other words, if you were an investor or as you being an entrepreneur now, what do you think is this one thing that investors look for within an entrepreneur in order to invest in them?
2: it's hmm, a good question. To be honest i, I have invested uh, very very little money myself uh, in in a few startups um, so i can't really speak like from from a vc perspective what my impression is based on 100 of investor pitches that i did to investors it's often you know in the end you have to tell a, a compelling story and the overall picture has to be right and you need to shut all the doors for them before they flee the room Uh, Because they are looking for, you know, weaknesses in your pitch, in your story, in in the company you're building. And if they find something which they don't like, they're out. So I guess in the end, it's the entire picture. And who creates this entire picture? It's, of course, the entrepreneur or ideally a team of entrepreneurs. So if you have, again, we come back to your very beginning, a compelling team that can also provide this compelling story and can find data to prove that the problem is big enough, then usually the, I guess the investor should be enticed to invest in this founder's team, especially in the seed round. And later on, of course, you have more, de- uh, more data to prove that actually what you're doing is on the right track. And then the risk is already smaller and they can also invest more on, based on this data.
1: And now being a med tech entrepreneur of obviously which you can speak to and going through this, this challenge of developing technology and growing this technology to ultimately reach patients. If you knew what you know now about being a med tech entrepreneur, would you do it all over again? Why or why not? Or would you just choose to do something differently?
2: Yes, I would do it all over again. Absolutely. My job is bringing brilliant and motivated engineers together and help them understand the problem of a medical professional. And by then providing a solution to, let's say, just 100 doctors, I can reach maybe 100,000 patients. So this immense lever I have in my hands with the company and uh, in improving quality of life for, for patients is super, super, super motivating. That's why I would do it all over again. I would probably try to avoid a lot of those mistakes. But to be honest, all those mistakes I did in the past shape the person I am right now and provide to the experience and you learn so much more from your mistakes. So I think I would do other mistakes when I would do it all over again. And now being a co-founder
1: and running DeepEye, we'll spoil the name of it, we'll get into the technology shortly here, but being a MedTech CEO and founder, is it glamorous being a MedTech CEO? I mean, this whole notion of running a company, and as you just mentioned, having a lever to be able to use this company to hit all these different patients with obviously, hopefully, a beneficial solution. What's this idea of
2: glamour and being a MedTech CEO? What do you think about that? I do not think it's very glamorous, to be honest. Like, at least in in my family circles and with my friends, uh, I didn't have the feeling it was something perceived as glamorous, but more like, okay, you're doing something very risky. So I think it's perceived as very risky from the outside, and it is. So that's something which for risk averse people, they, they don't get their head around it. Why I didn't just, you know, after doing business school, uh, started a big three consulting company and, and you know, the career is, is set later on, join a big corporate. So that's definitely more, it's a, it's a risky uh, job choice, I would say. But as I said also before, it's a very uh, satisfying job choice and I have a lot of freedom in what I do and how I do go about it. So, um, yeah, I don't think it's glamorous, it's risky, but it might be worth the risk, especially on a personal level, if maybe less so on a monetary level, but more on a personal level, personal development level.
1: And then I spoiled it a few minutes ago, but DeepEye, that's the name of your your company, deep DeepEye Medical. What does the name of your company mean? Why did
2: you choose that name? So actually the story of our um, company dates back uh, several years ago. I mean, there were since 2010, a lot of eye doctors uh, working together with with some, some resident eye doctors. They collected a lot of data, OCT data, which we will speak on later on. And then they did a research project today together with some AI experts and an AI professor in 2018. And that's when they had to come up with a project name for what they were doing. And they were calling it DeepEye as a a a synthesis of, you know, deep learning and the eye. So it's DeepEye. And to be honest, it's a quite frequent name in in this area. So I've seen a lot of companies or projects uh, calling themselves DeepEye. Well, luckily the trademark was still free and we uh, filed it.
1: Nice. Very nice. So. Lo and behold, the man behind the voices, as we've been hearing you, and and thank you for those answers and and responses that you've provided thus far, Manuel Opitz, founder, co-founder, as well as CEO of DeepEye. Tell us who you are as a person, as a professional. Where are you from? How did you build your life and your career? And as you mentioned, after business school, right, you chose not to go to the big three, but here you are running a company. So tell us who you are so we understand the remainder of this story that we're going to listen to where that foundation really came from the person the professional and, and ultimately what led you to found deep Eye. and then when we get there we're gonna break that box open and learn about exactly what you're building
2: okay let's look into the past first and i will refer actually to a question about luck so i'm a, like very lucky person i think i feel very lucky at least for instance i was super lucky to being born in the heart of europe here in germany into an academic household My my parents both being teachers for, for handicapped children. And we had you know uh, sufficient money to go to vacation, see the world. Um, I also benefited afterwards from a free public education, first at school, high school, university, everything was for free. I was very lucky to be awarded uh, for different fellowships that also paid for my stints in other countries like uh, at Trinity College Dublin. Uh, in Switzerland at St. Gallen, in in China, where I worked for some time, France doing my MBA program. So, you know, already all those points coming together. I feel very lucky because nothing of this, you know, uh, could have happened in in, in a lot of other countries. And yeah, after that, I actually joined, um, after doing my MBA, I joined a... Uh, startup here in Munich and uh, at first glance you might say it wasn't lucky because um, I forfeited big offers and went to the small startup for half the salary uh, and then after half a year, actually, the company tried to pivot because uh, their, their uh, business model was uh, being crashed by some uh, legal changes in the U.S. Um, patent system. So this company was fully focused on IP brokerage and patents, and I was responsible for the medical and um, mechanical engineering area. And... Um, In hindsight, I would say it wasn't unlucky for me. It was unlucky for the company, but not for me because I learned a lot during this process, you know, trying those pivots and then taking what still works out into a subsidiary company, founding basically a new company. And um, while I helped one of the partners doing this in the medical area, creating the spin out, I also um, worked with one of the doctors I had met at the startup um, on, on another startup of his, helped them also to raise money and I wrote a third business plan and also um, raised money for Mercurius. And Mercurius then I joined as CEO and co-founder and I built it up over the last five, six years. It's um, a company also providing software in the area of orthopedics to medical supply stores and certified prosthesis and orthothists. And um, yeah, I learned also a lot over this course. And then two years ago, roughly, uh, we brought in after some very unlucky, or I could say bad bad decisions of myself, trying to bring in experienced um, uh, head of sales I finally found um, actually an excellent one. He was also before, uh, let's say, uh, managing director of of one of our uh, biggest clients, although in between he had joined another startup, but then he was ready to come back into uh, his profession, which he learned 25 years back, prosthetics, orthotics. And we ca- could convince him to join uh, Mercurius as uh, the new CEO. I, I handed over marketing sales to him and then over the ca- course of the last two years, also um, other functions until now, I'm actually operative, not anymore working for Mercurius, just supporting in a, in a consulting role and of course involved as a shareholder. And in the meantime, also being more free to pursue some, let's say other non-business activities. So I founded my own family and have uh, very lucky to have a two year old son who actually grew up during the whole Corona pandemic, uh, only knowing people with uh, masks on, but it was a very enriching uh, experience myself. And last but not least, most recently, I've been very lucky again uh, that, you know, in Germany we have this um, very, very cheap compared to other country, Uh, Childcare system. So I have, you know, a daycare center just around the corner. My wife, who's a researcher in in health and AI as well, she can do her full time job leading her team while I can still also, you know, start a second company that is again, you know, I'm very lucky to have those conditions around me. And the last part here maybe and then we come to DeepEye is that um, while I was, let's say, un, unwinding, doing some parental leave at um, Mercure's, I was approached by some, well, by those doctors from from an eye center here in Germany. And I had some own other startup ideas myself already, all in the medical area, of course. Um, but when I saw this um, part about DeepEye and what they're doing, what they're trying to tackle, this strongly resonated with me first of all those are doctors again they have a problem they have tried a solution for three years they already have some prototypes and they were looking for somebody to bring it to the market go through regulatory raise funds build a company build a team etc and also on a personal level, because my grandfather, as well as my grandmother and my grand grand aunt, all three of them, they have, for instance, uh, the disease we are trying to combat, age-related macular degeneration, all of them, they need to get those eye injections. So that it was a very, very strong connection, which led me then in the end to not only help them with consulting, but also join this company we founded end of last year as a co-founder. So first and foremost, I have to say
1: thank you for actually taking advantage of the fact of when I asked who you are, you really went colorful on us, which I love that you did that because now for the rest of our time together, people will really know who Manuel is, which is which is important. So thank you for that. And now that we've arrived at DeepEye, you obviously mentioned that this project has resonated with you. What is DeepEye? Tell us. What are you building? What does this technology do? Who is it serving? Tell us about it.
2: So in a nutshell, at DeepEye, we empower eye doctors with AI to deliver better and more personalized eye injection therapy to their patients and thus prevent blindness. That's a very big claim. And yes, not we at DeepEye, we prevent blindness. We just make eye doctors or ophthalmologists better in their daily work. And by this, we also help them to combat the most common reasons for blindness in the Western or industrial world. And this being especially age-related macular degeneration or short AMD and diabetic retinopathy. And yeah, how do we do this? Actually, I mean, we uh, have developed several deep learning models. So we just do not just have, you know, the brand AI put on our company. We really have a lot of data scientists who do exceptional work in coming up with models trained of hundreds of thousands of Uh, Images, we have proprietary access thanks to our um, eye doctors to to a large database, a very unique database of um, very tightly uh, knit control imaging done of those patients. And uh, this is not the case for most data sets where patients after two or three years, they may become in only twice per year or four times per year. In our case, even after four or five years, they often come in monthly or bi-monthly to have the imaging taken. And this means we have a really, really good data set, a high quality data set. And now we developed several AI models, deep learning models that can provide Uh, a second opinion to doctors for several decisions they have to do around the therapy decision like inject or not to inject, for instance, or also when I inject, okay, what happens next? When should they come back for having a follow up appointment or follow up injection? And how many of those injections will there be necessary in the coming year? And especially the latter question, that's something that actually ophthalmologists cannot say. They don't know this. They may maybe have a gut feeling, but it's not something which they can really tell. So they are standardized regimes which actually provide them with some guidance what to do for the upcoming year. This can be that they either have to do imaging and then spontaneously decide, okay, now we do an injection series of three injections or there's another possible regime where they you know do an injection and then the next injection they will extend the frequency the duration between the injections by 2 or 4 weeks this is called treat and extend but it's both not very personalized it's fully standardized regimes and they are not really taking into account that all patients are differently and all ophthalmologists would like to improve those schemes and to do so we hope that actually our ai will empower them to look into the future and know is this a patient requiring frequent injections or less frequent injections? And then by this providing a better, more personalized uh, therapy. Maybe just to cite one of our professors uh, involved, he always calls it, you know, our vision is to have this need-based, basic patient-specific anti veger therapy. And I usually often call it treat and predict based from where we are right now, treat and extend. We should really go to treat and predict and not, you know, extend it and then trial and error, see if there's some vision loss or not. And if if there's vision loss then we make a shorter frequency, if there's no vision loss, we can further extend it. We can really go into the future and look at how will the disease progress. And how many injections will there be necessary for the coming year? And I think that's very helpful for medical professionals, but also for the patients who know what's coming for them. Thank you for
1: that. So let's have some fun here because I have some points that I wanted to well, that I gathered from that, but also now some questions that I have for you. So um, first and foremost, DeepEye is is purely software, right? There's no hardware yes. component to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And. and Is it a regulated system by by whether it's FDA or notified bodies? Are you a class one, class two, class three?
2: We are class two uh, A device. um, uh, According to, you know, uh, medical device regulation in Europe, Uh, we are not yet on the market. So this remains to be done. And um, yeah, we are so-called clinical therapy or clinical decision support system. That's what most people classify as. And... Being a class two a
1: device with the new implementation, we're coming up on a year, a couple months here, actually, but the, the European medical device regulations, the new MDRs, Mm -hmm. did those implementation, those regulatory newness constraints that were implemented? did, Did those have any change on your business model or your company, or are you guys too young yet to really feel it?
2: So I've seen this more in my past company where we start, started under the MDD and then transitioned to MDR. So from the national regulation to the European regulation, I think uh, first and foremost, most people complain about MDR. But I think it's a good thing that we now have a medical regulation which covers all of Europe compared to what we also have with the M- uh, FDA and U.S. Uh, there are a lot of disadvantages, there's a very monolithic regulation. So yes, um, there are higher costs now going to market than there were previously, but it doesn't change actually too much. Also not our clinical evaluation pathway. It's more actually when I'm right now looking at the US that with the FDA, for instance, I know they have approved uh, a lot of um, uh, medical software or de- medical device software over the last years. And they, they accepted clinical evaluations based on retrospective data and, and so-called regression analysis. That's something which right now also is uh, possible in, in Europe. Uh, still, but I know, for instance, that the FDA is very looking very critical into it, and maybe they think about you know, not maybe for for regulatory approval, but they want to make it probably mandatory in the future to have prospective larger cohort studies with patients live in the field um, to to you know further undermine um, w- that the value provided by the AI is really superior to what has been there before, and I think that's something which is not un, uh, necessarily a bad thing. I, I actually think it's a good idea as long as it doesn't, you know, make the route to market more complicated. I think to do post-market studies is something which does not only work in, 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 uh, yeah, in, in pharma, but it also works with medical devices. And it's something which MDR also makes mandatory right now. So I think it's only logical that the FDA also wants to, you know, level up there a bit, especially looking at AI software.
1: And so you mentioned your previous company, and then you had to hire a head of sales, and you also raised money there. So th- this, DeepEye, is not your first entrepreneurship before. This is your second, actually.
2: That's my second own startup, and I worked for, for two others before it, yes. Okay, so
1: you're very familiar with this world. Um, how old is Deep Eye? Like, When did you actually found it?
2: so i think the first contact with Deby was established last year in may and then i worked basically um, as a consultant part-time on it and uh, committed myself full-time uh, from september on when when i had uh, quit my operative role at Mercure's, and then in october we incorporated and yeah so we are basically half a year old more or less and yeah, it's it's going quite well. We already have six digit revenue preclinical without <laughs> medical approval because we have developed already our MVP uh, since January. It's live. We are demoing it to a lot of doctors, but also other companies, you know, insurance reimbursement players, but also uh, pharma players. And we, we have already our first contracts. Um, where we get data sets to analyze them with our, um, let's say, call them pilot projects, where we get data sets, we analyze them with our software and we can provide them some insights into, you know, could we with our AI in the case, for instance, of a clinical trial that happened in the past could have predicted some of the outcomes or could have provided a faster way to towards using this data compared to, you know, involving, for instance, a lot of doctors to do the grading afterwards.
1: So I love these stories because we're catching you in this very beginning, right? So this is a true entrepreneurial story, six months old-ish. First and foremost, let's have some fun with this conversation. Now, you mentioned you're already revenue generating, but to be six months and even get a website off the ground and have people in the firm or company, rather, did you already close funding for this company or or was it there before you arrived or what's the funding aspect to date with Dby?
2: Okay so to to be fully transparent I'm standing here on the shoulder of giants so As I said, uh, the first AI research project started in 2018 and it was a project done by those uh, um, ophthalmologists from Münster together with the Westphalia Data Lab, some data scientists, uh, data science consultancy, actually also based in Münster in their neighborhood. And they started the first research project and they quickly could um, convince Novartis to fund actually their research. So. Uh, Novartis and uh, you know there were some 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 prizes also they won the German AI award in 2020 so there overall there's been uh, already a seven digit amount uh, invested into research prior the incubation of DeepEye and that's why I say I am standing on the shoulder of giants we are working with everything they have found out about what works but also a lot of you know what did not work in the research project and so that's very very valuable input and we are still working basically with the same team that has been working on this for three years. I think that's, that's quite valuable if you don't have to explain the data, says, uh, data scientist, okay, what's actually the retina? What is actually you know subretinal fluid? What's intra-retinal fluid? If they already know all these terms, they are much, much faster in providing new AI models for the doctors on, upon their request.
1: So each company is always different, especially when it comes to fundraising, so I know there's uniqueness in there, but I want to just take a quick sidestep before we return back to what you're doing with Deepai and that strategy of raising capital that you're going to be either currently pursuing or will be pursuing. Um, You said that you raised money in your previous organization and you've been an entrepreneur now several times over. For all those entrepreneurs or even want to be entrepreneurs listening into this right now, if someone's at Medtronic or Boston Scientific or J&J right now listening in and saying, you know, I I think I want to start my company someday. I want to, I want to learn really what entrepreneurship is all about. So if you're speaking to those people, right, uh, either early stage entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs, um, generalization, and once again, knowing that every company is different, what are, what is the learning curve of raising capital? for a first-time entrepreneur, like when you didn't raise capital ever and then you did, what were some of those philosophical transferable skill sets that even though each company is different, you know, whether it's your previous company, now by the next company you go to after DeepEye, when you raise capital as an entrepreneur, what should you be expecting? What are the challenges? What, what are some of the advice that you would give them?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, first of all, I like your statement about the generalization. I will follow in your footsteps here. I, I'm a big fan of the Pareto rule. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's good to focus on the 20 percent, which maybe have the biggest lever. They don't apply in all cases, but um, let's focus on on those learnings. In my case, um, one of the, the biggest learnings regarding fundraising is, you know, bring a team. <laughs> don't come alone. And in my first startup, for instance, I had um, a CFO who already had uh, been co-founder of another fintech startup before. Uh, We had um, amazing um, head of product uh, hardware as well as software. We had a physician uh, who could be very convincing, especially towards investors. So, you know, somebody in a white coat is very convincing to medtech investors compared to yourself. And last but not least, we already had a serial entrepreneur on board very early on um, who had founded, I think, six or seven companies already. And this actually, you know, gave me almost a false impression because we we were starting out, um, we were seeing, had some first investor um, contact, then we actually um, merged together with another startup based on the contact through one of those investors who said, hey, you are doing this, that's really great. You're doing the software and platform again, but you need maybe, products on your platform. I know this other um, startup, they basically have a product, but they need a platform to sell it. And so we merged and um, that was one of the things which w- went very easy the first time. The second thing which went very easy was we found, uh, we raised some, let's say, semi-public money here in Germany, where we have uh, great support for, uh, through HDGF or, or Bayern Capital, Bavaria Capital, stuff like this. So this can be a very, especially for first-time founders, this can be a very fast route towards the first seed funding or pre-seed funding, and um, the the funding was kind of almost faster closed than than we had an anticipated. And uh, based on the experience of all those people brought to the table, and what I didn't know at this time, and what what for me was a very important learning right now, is that actually uh, you can kind of almost race too early and um, especially you have to make really sure that you, with the funding, get towards certain milestones that you need then for your next round. And that's something which I really try to incorporate now right now with Deepi. I mean, we are in the lucky position, as I said, to have revenue. We can pay our developers, that's, that's good, although we cannot pay ourselves. Um, this is super helpful and w- which mean we basically have kind of infinite runway. We don't have a big burn rate. We have long runway. We have um, cash flow. That's good. And I would rather right now wait actually for the right lead investor who can then also help us to structure the next round, set up clear milestones that are needed for maybe a series A, like, for instance, getting medical approval, launching the product in Germany or in some other European market. These are clear milestones which we have to fulfill. And now we can really have the capital need based on this. We can try to find the investor who can then also, at least in the next next round, make a a sizable contribution Um, because that was something at Mercurius which uh, almost bankrupted us back at this time when we were between seed and series A, finding then the right lead investor convincing the VC Uh, to trust in us, especially at this time when digital health was not such a big hype topic as it is right now. Uh, That was really, really uh, big learning and very helpful for me and which I would recommend to all the founders from the very beginning. Look at what is a future network and future help that your investors can provide to you. And can you maybe bring them on early, even if it's just maybe in regular contact? Uh, not as investors but stay with them in the loop okay we have done this we have achieved those milestones we will be fundraising only next year but just to let you know so that you already have the track record with them when you then reach out for the next round and um, that's something which for me is now very crucial to implement at deep
1: so now all of a sudden if we go back to deep um this difference that you mentioned we were talking about the 20% rule and thank you for that advice and counsel that you just shared with us. But even if you're standing on the shoulders of giants, you're now raising around for deep high. Is it a seed round? Is it a series A? What are you calling it?
2: Well, names <laughs> are, I think, very, uh, it's, especially at this point of time, it's, it's often difficult. We call it a seed round because we have our MVP. We have first sales. We have traction with um, exceptional uh, partnerships. Not all of them can be already publicly announced. We have a, a very clear reimbursement pathway. Uh, we are already working of getting into, uh, you know, those contracts for the German health insurance. And that's something which um, is already very, very far. On the other hand, there are still a lot of risk which we have to do. And I think um, th- for medtech companies, it's quite difficult between SEED and Series A. What you have to do is you have to de-risk a lot of the clinical risks. And that's what we are going to do right now. We have our first pilots. The first results will be up in the coming weeks. And um, with those clinical evaluations, we get more and more data until we can, you know, go for the CE marking and get the official medical device approval. And that's really, I would say, between SEED and Series A. And for me, the Series A is then about, you know, scaling the sales in Europe, maybe going from Germany to other countries, building up reimbursement strategies and pathways for those other countries. And of course, a second big thing, which we wanna do then with a series A, maybe in two years, uh, to look further towards US market. We, in the meantime, will of course establish first contacts, gather some data from there. But um, as I said, for for FDA, it might be a bit different um, than with CE marking, depending on how regulations change. And that's why then in in two years, we will have a bigger ticket to afford um, to, to go down the FDA, pathway and also reimbursement in the US as well as in other European countries.
1: So you mentioned names are, are fluid these days, but I guess one of the questions that I wanted to highlight, if you can speak to it, certainly on the software side, I know you can speak to it, but you know, th- this was a learning lesson for me as I'm hosting this podcast, as I'm interviewing software founders and co-founders and CEOs like yourself versus the hardware style technologies, the implantables, the catheters, the surgical robotics, right? The, um, what are the nuances between raising capital for a software or a pure software play, artificial intelligence, SaaS-based models versus classical hardware technologies? And if you can't understand, or if you can't speak to, to the actual differences between both, just from what you know about raising capital for a software company, speak to that uniqueness because there is a difference. And I've, I've come to learn this over time, that there is truly a difference. There's investors who only invest in software. There's some that only invest in hardware. Um, there's some that try to play in both. And then, you know, the, the rounds are different. The sizes are different. What they're called is different. There's a lot of seed, pre-seed, post-seed in software. And, and, and also, even with being in seed, like you mentioned, there's revenue generation in some of these software companies where for hardware, you know, if you're in a seed round, some typically you don't even have revenue in a series A. You might not even have revenue until a series C. And, and one of the jokes was, you know, series C, C stands for commercialization. So, um, you know, talk about the differences if you can, or if you can't just speak specifically to the nuances of raising for software.
2: Yeah. I, I think i can actually talk <laughs> endlessly about it because um well first of all uh, my background is first and foremost being a medical engineer so i was looking mostly at hardware devices at the beginning of my career and also the first devices i ever brought to market under ce fda were hardware medical devices um although uh, we have seen also and i mentioned it um, also before quickly with mercurius we had in the beginning actually quite a problem as we said hey we are building here a software platform for medical supply stores and you know it's a tool that enables prosthetists and orthotists to design uh, to to quickly design uh, um, orthotics and prosthetics devices customized for the patients that's really new and everyone told us, oh, that's great, but you know, how do I get it out of the software? You know, how do I get the device? And this actually led us then to, uh, to merge with this other company who already had some prototypes of uh, you know, 3D printed physical orthotics and prosthetic devices. And that was, I think, six, seven years ago when uh, digital health was not really a big topic. And we really had the strong divide between hardware investors Especially, let's say, hardware medtech investors, and um, maybe they were they liked software, but more like in terms of you know operating system for for the device or the imaging modality or something. And on the other side, software investors who had, however, no clue about often no clue about um, medtech who did not like, you know, that you have to go, uh, that you build, need to build a quality management system, that you have to first get medical device approval. And the first question they always asked us were, okay, how many thousand users do you already have? What's your revenue? Or, okay, it's a freemium model or whatever, but how many free users do you already have on your platform? We were like, we are not allowed to let anyone, a medical professional on it before we have the medical approval. So that was something which I think now is much, much easier. Just to give you one example here, I built, um, of course, based on my experience from Mercurius, but also to talking to you and I think 10, 20 other founders, I built very quickly a list of 180 digital health investors, mostly in Europe. So right now everyone is looking or has understood that actually you need some kind of software to make it truly scalable. It doesn't mean you always have to do Uh, software and there are a few funds which rightly so just do only hardware, which is right now actually a differentiator to other investors. But I think the most powerful systems, they have to be some combination of both. And in our case, we fully concentrate on software because I mean, the hardware, medical devices, imaging technologies, they are already out there in the field. There are a lot of other ophthalmic uh, startups and they try to do both hardware and software, but having this learned as well from Mercurius, it's something, you know, it increases the complexity, not by a factor of two, but it's more like an exponent of two. The complexity you get when you have to go through medical device approval for hardware and software still might be again, a bit different with FDA, where you have to couple your software to a medical device kind of, which is maybe already pre-existing, but those are very, very, I think not only regulatory questions, but also investor questions. And I think right now it's, absolutely no problem anymore to find funds where you have physicians, hopefully, next to one or two hardware engineers and a software developer, and they together decide or do the due diligence, or they bring in external people to you know, one to look at your AI model, somebody else to look at the medical need. And this is also how our team is built up. I mean, we have a CTO with a deep background in this area we have myself as kind of the generalist and translator in the middle we have a huge team of doctors and then we have those data scientists and in the end we try to bring together all their expertises
1: so thank you for sharing that that was very very interesting Um, what you've learned and now coming from the hardware background into the software world and bridging both of those gaps now raising capital for a software-based company you mentioned building this 180 list within europe um, for digital health investors what strategy since you started this raise for D by? what strategy have you implemented and i think as you mentioned earlier on in our discussion today is you know you, you learn more from failures than you do successes and, and you do learn from both but i certainly agree with you that um, failures are a lot more meaningful when you have to have learning because you don't want to do that again if especially if you failed so what has worked so far in your raise and what hasn't worked so far? For all those, once again, think about the entrepreneurs listening in right now who have never raised money before. You know, you put together this 180 list, how? Did you buy a software system to implement these 180 people? Did you do this absolute Flintstone grinding effort of just calling hundred people, asking them who they knew and then taking down the contact information and reaching out to them directly. Like what is these fundamental aspects of your strategy that you've taken thus far for raising for DeepEye and then high level what's worked and what hasn't worked?
2: I think that's, that's very interesting to share and I'm, I'm really open also after the podcast for anyone interested in this to, to reach out because um, as I, I said before, I take a lot of learnings from other founders who have recently raised or just are raising around and who are, I would say, overall in digital health. And I've been speaking to them like I I spoke with you and I get very helpful advice and I get introduction to certain investors and I get tips like, okay, you know, those this fund they don't have it on their website, but actually they are out of cash, for instance. That's one of the big problems you have to look for. And so uh, basically to, to compile this list, I tried one or two of those online systems, which are very nice. And you have a Kanban-like system. You First you, you screen for investors uh, using some, some keywords and you, you have this Kanban-like system where you try to get uh, investors from the left to the right and get them through your process. Um, However, all those systems are very US focused. I found one or two from from actually uh, Europe, but uh, they were still, you know, they were lacking a lot of the investors I actually knew personally already. And that's why I, in the end, uh, went back based also on the advice from other founders. I just created a big Google sheet. I copied three publicly available lists, like, for instance, Techstars or Uh, Imagine if, or I think there are some others which I probably miss right now, EIT Health or something. So yeah, there are some publicly available lists and you can filter it maybe for digital health investors. You sort out all the duplicates and then you have to do uh, the analysis of what are they looking for and am I the right fit for them. And I think that takes a lot, a lot, a lot of time, more time than you would think. Uh, because in the end, you can you have to go to their website. You check out their Crunchbase profile. Okay, what's the ticket sizes they advertise on their website? What's what are they looking for? What's actually more telling is actually to look what's their portfolio, because a lot of them they say okay we basically do everything in health tech, and then you look at your porfo- at the portfolio and you see okay, it's like a lot of funds. They to be honest, they just do spine, oncology, uh, cardiology. That's it. Those are the big areas, they know they can do a big exit and they might not l- really look, for instance, into ambulance care. Ophthalmology, for instance, was a very easy filter. There are very, very few investors who actually did investments in ophthalmology before. And if you find them, you often see that they actually do one or two or even three investments. So you see they found, found a liking in this niche and then they build upon it because they have some, let's say, USP also compared to other investors and some, some uh, knowledge uh, advantage. And that's something for me which was very helpful for filtering, but also, you know, just going through Crunchbase and see, okay, what are actually the real ticket sizes? Be a bit careful about Crunchbase, but what are the ticket sizes they recently participated in or or the rounds? Because some say, well, I'm an early stage investor and this can mean everything and nothing. So you have to really see, do they participate in pre-seed rounds, seed rounds, series A, everything of this can fall under early stage. And that's why it's very important to to you know look all this up, and then there is a last step which you might not have to do before contacting them, but you should definitely do when they have you know had some first interest. And it's actually helpful to also do it before to start investor due diligence. It's also not something which I did a lot in my first startup, but right now I do quite a lot. I also have now a much bigger network of of founders I know from from all over Europe and I just contact them even if I don't know them. But I say, OK, you know, I'm a founder like you. I'm I'm raising for my second startup. I saw you have this investor invested in you. Um, Can we have a quick call about them? And I think in 80, 90 percent, those people, if you have give them some good reasons why they should talk to you, they will have a 15 minute Zoom call with you and they will be very open and tell you, you know, this investor, they really brought this and that value to the table. You know, not not about money, but what else do they bring to the table? How are they in board meetings? How did they help to structure and set up the round? And that's very, very helpful for not only selecting those investors, but then also later on prioritizing between them. Because if you only look at the valuation and the money provided, you might make a very wrong uh, decision. And that's why it's very, very helpful to to do this investor due diligence. Like they look at you, they do due diligence of the startup. So you should do the same on the other side. And then you have also more honest expectations And you know, you are not uh, afterwards, maybe after one or two year, you you say, okay, wow, that's really different from what I expected. I had hoped for much more from those investors, but because you talk to some other founders, you actually know what you get. And it's not that I had actually bad bad experience myself, but I know a lot of uh, fellow founders who told me tell me horror stories all the time. So so I'm really grateful for, for having had this great consortium in my first startup. And I want to replicate this and to increase the uh, chances of, of success. I try to find out as much much as possible. And even if it takes me half an hour, one hour to research just one single investor and in the end find out, okay, this is not the right investor for us. It saves me the one hour or half hour call of getting to know them. It saves me, I don't know, 100 hours of, you know, maybe then in negotiations later on, which don't come to fruition. And it saves me a lifetime or, and 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 my mental sanity of having them in my board when I then find out, OK, they are not the right investor for us.
1: I can't thank you enough for sharing that. I, I, I don't think we've ever even a had this topic on the podcast and b gone as deep as you just did into it, if we ever have. Um, But actually taking the time to methodically spend that time calling up other founders or other entrepreneurs who have then been invested by those investors and actually doing that due diligence on them. Um, It sounds like it should be so straightforward. I I can tell you most entrepreneurs don't do that. But to your point, that's an excellent exercise. and, And it's what we have heard a lot on this podcast series. Are entrepreneurs truly giving advice saying, listen, it's a two-way street. Don't just take money for the sake of taking money. And if you're in this position of your hands are out like this and you're desperate for money, A, investors can smell it. It's like blood in the water with sharks. Um, B, it's never going to be a a good option for uh, any investor in terms of terms, or I should say entrepreneur in terms of terms. So to be able to be as proactive as your as you're mentioning right now and taking that time to methodically make it a two-way street and interview or do the due diligence on investors just as much as they do it on your technology. Huge piece of advice, no matter how simple or foundational it sounds. So thank you for sharing
2: that. Um, maybe, maybe one last piece of advice. Listen yeah. to this podcast. This podcast is really awesome. So what I learned That's through absolutely. this podcast, because you interview a lot of investors and they open up quite a lot. You know, they tell you, you know, actually what we are saying on a website is this. But what we don't really like in companies is this and that. And you're like, okay, I'm in this category, so I don't even need to call them. So it's very, very helpful to get really, you know, if you're interested in investor, just browse through your podcast and probably most likely you have uh, interviewed one of the partners and they tell you actually what is what gets them excited about the company and what not. And the second thing, what I also learned from your podcast, there were several founders or at least one of them, which, for instance, then shared, uh, I, I reached out and we, we actually uh, shared our Excel tables, basically our or Google Sheets, and we compared investor uh, leads uh, notes, who is, uh, has uh, raised a fund recently, what amount of the fund, uh, do they still have dry powder, what's their t- typically uh, ticket size and stuff like this. So you know, reaching out to those um, startup people as well, founders on your podcast is a second very helpful thing.
1: Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Thank you for the positive feedback, even while we're doing a podcast right now. So thank you very much, Manuel. I, I do wanna, I, I wanna leave off with this. I, I know um, we have a little bit more time. I don't wanna be um, too greedy of your time, but I wanna leave off with one question. And it's more of an industry-based question. Um, and, and also, for my knowledge, hopefully it benefits all those other software developers out there. I hear a lot of med tech software companies who are being developed right now, and a lot of these partnerships or even some of their investments are coming from not medical device or med tech industry, but the pharmaceutical industry. And um, my question is, we're seeing or why are we seeing more pharmaceutical companies partner with these medical software and AI companies like DeepEye, like what what are the mechanics or the economics or the motivations for medical software to converge and meet with pharmaceutical industry?
2: I think in uh, Germany right now, we have a very interesting situation that basically for 15 years, nothing moved forwards. And then we had those, um, yeah, the minister who finally decided, hey, let's do something and have uh, digital health applications, short DIGAS here in Germany. And that actually is something uh, which you see in other countries, maybe a bit less regulated or reimbursed in in digital uh, companion apps or stuff like this. And that's something, uh, or or often called digital therapeutics. And that's something where I think farmer has seen that this might be a great route forward and there are different things of, you know, I mean, there are really digital therapeutics which you take instead of a drug, especially around mental health and that show in clinical studies as well that there is very high efficacy or at least uh, good evidence that they provide substantial support for the people who need them. Um, but there are also, for instance, now those companion apps, and I think there was just recently the FDA declared, hey, those companion apps. Uh, there are different ways to to use them, but one is basically as a label, so as a packaging instructions for 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 drugs. So you can have now, for instance, an app which helps you actually when you take a drug, a pill, um, and you have an an app alongside it to use it more effectively. For first and foremost, not forget about it, then use it at the right point of time. Maybe also, you know, have some kind of um, a diary where you put up reactions, either adverse reactions or reactions overall. What's the success? How does it help? So I think there's a lot of this, which is super, super interesting for pharma. And now coming back, for instance, why are companies like Novartis, Bayer, Roche, all working with our eye doctors. I don't say all of them already work with DeepEye, although Novartis for instance is, but um, it's very, very interesting for them to see also, okay, what can AI change in the clinical practice in the future. And they maybe see it more, let's say, as some kind of new modality. In the past, it was all about, you know, developing new imaging modalities, and maybe now it's, we have the imaging, but we can get more out of the image if we have an AI to help us look at it. That's exactly what we also help to do. So our first and foremost customer forever will be the ophthalmologist, and we want to make his or her life better, providing better care. But by doing so, we actually get very, very interesting insights into real world outcomes that farmer has no connection to. They just have the clinical trial data. They don't know what really happens in the ambulant ophthalmic practice. We cannot just sell this data, and we also don't want to do this ever. But what we can do is we can do some high level analytics and try to understand, okay, what's actually uh, the the switching point for doctors between different drugs? What uh, are the um, what are the reasons uh, why they have decided to switch, what are also the, 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 the patient cohorts with the highest efficacy and lowest side effects for, for certain drug. And all of this is very, very interesting for farmer to, for instance, enlarge um, um, the area of applicability of their current drugs, but also to come up with new drugs that tap un, un, uh, that, that address unmet needs. So we are not um, a pharmaceutical uh, development tool that's not our goal but we actually try to close the data loop in, in uh, between the pharma company and uh, the ophthalmologist and this works in both directions as well because thanks to our doctors we are participating directly or indirectly in all those trials now for new drugs from Roche, Bayer, Novartis and whatever and We see in those um, new clinical trials for those new drugs that there are, for instance, new therapy, forms of therapy coming to the market, which makes it much more complex for the doctor to decide. Right now, most eye injections are very similar to each other, but in the future, there will be not only the monthly injection, there's also the three monthly injection. There's also the biannual container solution, which you just have to refill twice per year. So how do you pick which therapy? And we will be basically the guidance, guiding system for the ophthalmologists, and the platform to, you know, take this data from the clinical trials and make it accessible in a, um, yeah, digestible form for the doctor at the point of care when they have the patient in front of them and decide, okay, this is a high frequency patient, maybe I should think about this depot solution. This is a low frequency patient. Let's just take the standard drug, maybe even a biosimilar or or a generic drug and uh, that's the best way to move it forward.
1: This has been fascinating. Manuel, I want to say thank you so much for your time and also for taking such a a foundational approach to this, sharing your background with us um, and and knowing that you've been an entrepreneur numerous times over and based on the information that you have shared with us today, it's very, very clear. So whether it's you benefiting by reaching out to other people on this podcast, which I'm very glad to hear. Um, I hope that entrepreneurs who are listening into this do take you up on your offer of having them reach out to you. And if you can help them out, that would be excellent. But at a minimum, um, the foundational information that you've shared with us today on how to build a startup company, how to raise money for it, the differences and nuances between software and hardware and raising capital for those styles of technologies. In addition to now what you just shared with us on, on the convergence of pharmaceutical and medical software um, technology companies, which is for me fascinating. And Thank you for teaching me that today. Um, I want to say thank you very much for your time. This is Manuel Opitz, founder, co-founder, CEO of deep eye. Thank you so much for your time. This is the MedTech Money podcast series where we demystify raising and investing capital. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks, Giovanni.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.